I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to the show. It's another day, day, day. Yeah. <laughs> See, I don't know why I felt like I had to rhyme we're, something. Well, because we were singing a song. <laughs> Songs have to rhyme. Yeah, otherwise they're bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Take that. Probably a lot of uh, many musicians. Songs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> many a song. <laughs> oh, welcome back. We're super excited to have you today. Always yes. so happy to have you. Thanks for listening. Trying to inject some uh, some joy into this. It's a, into yeah. these times. It's a weird time to yes. be alive. Like most times yep. to be alive, I guess. That's true. It's been a weird time to be alive as long as I can remember. Yep. These unprecedented times are starting to feel pretty precedented. Hella precedented. <laughs> I don't really feel unprecedented anymore. It just feels pretty normal. Oh, another big old thing yeah. going on. <laughs> but y'all have heard about that plenty. You don't need to hear about that from us. Came yeah, to hear fun yeah. stories. 
Yeah, totally. Right? We're here to distract you from that mm-hmm. and think about other things yeah. for a few minutes at a time. I like also that this conversation we're having is totally evergreen because we could, could be. be talking about anything. <laughs> we're just going to distract you from the horrible the thing, thing that's going on. Insert here. You know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, God. So I hope everybody's uh, doing well, staying yeah. in high spirits and yeah. uh, taking care of yourselves. Definitely. Most importantly. Definitely. And those around you. Mm-hmm. and strangers in far-off lands. I don't care. Take care of somebody, you know? Yeah, but we do have a really awesome episode for you guys today. Yes. I'm so excited about this one. As soon as I learned about this person, I was like, I'm diving in immediately yes. and doing an episode. Definitely. Um, About you. But first, we wanted to reach into the old mailbag and read one of these letters from our listeners. So how about a good old mail call? <laughs> Awesome. All right. So this email came from Laura Shape, and she said that you guys are awesome, which was so nice to hear. Thank you. I've never shied away from being called awesome. That's uh, (laughs) always one of my favorite things to be called. (laughs) Um, She said that she had just finished listening to the Christo and Jean-Claude episode. If you haven't heard that, please go check it out. It's beautiful. I love that story. Amazing. And uh, Laura liked it, too. She said... I was a graphic design major in the early 90s and watched a movie on this pair for art history class. I don't remember which of their artworks it was about, but I do remember thinking it was pretentious and stupid, and she was definitely his assistant. But now I realize that was probably just my shitty teacher, and I wish I could go back and tell him what a jerk he was. (laughs) Uh, I feel you, Laura. I have several teachers. I wish I could go back and tell him what a jerk I thought they were. (laughs) Uh, She goes on, you two have made me see it in a completely fresh, fun, and beautiful way, and I'm truly grateful for it. I wish you had been my teachers. <laughs> no, you don't. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is about the extent of what I would be capable of doing as a teacher. Like, right. Which the I minute guess... y'all asked a question, I'd be like, oh, was I not just talking? No, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> I'd be like, well, that's a very interesting point. Let's talk about it for another 45 minutes. <laughs> Laura says, I have always struggled with my own desire to create art, but... I have a lack of personal message or gravitas. I'm generally pretty light and cheerful. And while I know heavy people don't create better art, there's always a part of me that felt insecure about not having deep, meaningful why. Mm -hmm. I've always just made stuff because it made me happy to make. And I thought it would look cool. But that has made me feel somehow less than as an artist. Now I'm in my early 50s and have started pursuing art full-time as a second career, and this podcast just helped fill a hole I didn't realize I had. I will now more confidently pursue my bliss and love of beauty joyfully and playfully without feeling the need to justify it. Thank you. Thank oh, you for saying that. that's so awesome. Laura, I mean, that's, yeah, taking that lesson from Jean-Claude and Christo, I took that lesson from them. I think we all can. That you don't have to go out and have some sort of like, like you said, heavy, you know, introspective, meaningful thing. Like you don't need a reason to make art. Yeah. Especially if you're just making something pretty. Yeah. I mean, and nice. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of art with a point can be ugly on purpose. Sure. And that can have a good point right. to it. But yeah, if you're, I'm like, I just want to make things look nice. It's something I want to make. I feel good when I make it. Is yeah. that not enough? Yeah. You don't need more. I'd even say it doesn't even have to look nice. Like if you right. just want to create something, if you just want to take your hands mm-hmm. and something didn't exist and now it does. Right. I don't care what All it is. All the better. Yeah. Be a mishmash of slop. And like, <laughs> cool. 
great. Right. You, you brought something into existence, and I, that that's cool enough for me. It is very cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So, I'm so glad that that podcast meant so much to somebody. Very awesome. Very Thank cool. you so much, Laura. And just for us, she goes on to say, also, I've been meaning to write to you the rest of the time to say, I just adore you as a couple. Your enjoyment of each other shines through, and that makes you a delight to listen to. Also, I love your choice of topics and your quirky take on history. It's a wonderful show, and I have told many people about it. Yay, Yay! Laura! Laura! Tell many people. Tell many people. Tell many people. (laughs) That's the (laughs) best thing anybody can do. I know. Huge compliment. Oh, thank you. I mean... You didn't have to write in anything to us, but you did. And you didn't have to tell anybody about our show. And you mm-hmm. did that, too. So double thank you to Laura. And we're a cute couple. Oh, yeah. I forgot That's about really that part. Nice. Yeah. That's nice. Well, come come spend some time on a on a, on a a spring cleaning day. And see how ugly <laughs> it gets around here. <laughs> That's true. It does get ugly. Um. Well, thank you so much, Laura, yeah, for writing in. You. And Wonderful. to everyone who writes oh, in, um, we, we do read every message we get. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes our episodes just feel a little too long to throw an email on the air. But when we feel like we get a chance, we definitely will uh, read them out. Yeah. And so keep them coming. Mm-hmm. It keeps us going. That's for sure. It does. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. So Polly Murray is a true unsung hero. She was so far ahead of her time that she was always behind the scenes. Fifteen years before Rosa Parks, she was arrested for refusing to change seats on a segregated bus. She placed a bet that Plessy v. Ferguson would be overturned, and not only did she win that bet, it was overturned using the argument she made in law school. She inspired a young Ruth Bader Ginsburg, had a decades-long friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt, and helped start the National Organization for Women. I've only done half of those things. That's amazing. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, And she also struggled with her sexuality and her gender identity. And she's just truly a trailblazer and a certified badass. So let's talk about Anna Pauline Murray. Yes, let's go. Yeah. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second A production of iHeartRadio. So Anna Pauline Murray was born in Baltimore, Maryland on November 20th, 1910. But her mother died suddenly when she was only three of a massive cerebral hemorrhage. So her father sent her to live with her maternal aunt, Pauline Fitzgerald, for whom she was named, and also her maternal grandparents, Cornelia and Robert, in Durham, North Carolina. Shout out. I have some family in Durham. If you're listening, hope you're well. Love you. But three years after she was sent to live with her family in Durham, her father was committed to an insane asylum, where in 1922, a racist white guard screamed slurs at him dragged him into the basement, and beat him to death with a baseball bat. Oh, God. In her memoir, Song in a Weary Throat, Polly remembers attending his funeral at the age of 12, seeing him laid in an open casket, his skull, quote, split open like a melon and sewed together loosely with jagged stitches. Awful. Terrible. Awful. And Horrific. again, she hasn't seen her dad since she was three. So yeah. that's her second memory of her father, basically. God. Horrible. She called her family a United Nations in miniature 
because her maternal grandmother, Cornelia, had been born enslaved. She was the daughter of an enslaved woman who was frequently raped by her enslaver. Her grandfather, Robert, had been raised free in Pennsylvania, attending anti-slavery meetings with Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. She also had Native American ancestry. Her relatives ranged from rich to poor, fair-skinned with blue eyes to dark-skinned with 4C curls, from Episcopalians to Quakers. She grew up, as she said, quote, a thin, wiry, ravenous child. <laughs> she was willful but eager to please. She devoured snacks and books with equal enthusiasm. And by the time she graduated high school at only 15 years old, she was editor-in-chief of the school newspaper, president of the Literary Society, class secretary, mm. member of the debate club, mm. a top student, mm. and a forward on the basketball team. What? Those Son, seriously, I've done any of those things. <laughs> I mean, I was president of the drama club. <laughs> You're still president of the drama club. I know, here. and I never left. <laughs> yeah, she would have been one of these kids who got like 600 scholarships to like every right. school in the world. Yeah, just type a, person. Her, her choice anywhere she wanted to go. Right? Wrong. Because, of course, after the Civil War ended and slavery was outlawed, white people immediately did everything we could to keep black people from progressing in America. Laws deciding where formerly enslaved people could work and exactly how much they could earn were passed in many states. KKK violence surged, mm. like, astronomically. Yeah. And by 1896, the Supreme Court upheld the right of white people to segregate public and private spaces. I mean, as long as there were equal facilities available for black citizens. Right. So if you, you could have a... A bathroom for white people only, as long as you also had a bathroom for black people only. Right. And that was in the Plessy v. Ferguson decision, more commonly known as separate but equal. And Polly hated segregation. And this is probably because, you know, she's growing up surrounded by a family that is so full of variety. So she's like, this is bullshit. Yeah. You know, if we can all live together, what the fuck's going on? Right. So even as a kid, she walked everywhere rather than ride in segregated streetcars. She boycotted movie theaters instead of sitting in balconies reserved for mm. black audience members. And so she was kind of like, I don't want to go to the segregated North Carolina college for black students. I don't want to go there. She has set her sights up north and decided to enroll at Columbia in New York because she deserves the best. Right. Unfortunately... While Columbia University was fine with her being black, they did object to her being a woman. Wow. So she was welcome to attend their women's college, Barnard, but she couldn't afford the tuition. Hmm. The all-women's school, Hunter College, was free for New York residents, but she didn't live there. Another problem was that black high schools in North Carolina ended in 11th grade, so she would have to re-enroll in high school in New York to get her high school diploma first. <laughs> So she had to move in with a cousin in Queens to become a New York resident. And she completed her senior year as the only black student in a high school of 4,000 students. And she finally entered Hunter College, one of four black students. Instead of staying with her sister in Queens, she lived at the Harlem YMCA. And there she became friends with Langston Hughes and she met W.E.B. Dubois. She heard lectures from activist Mary McLeod Bethune and she went to the Apollo to see Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway. Mm -hmm. And she worked towards becoming a writer. 
He is living it up. I know. It's like the height of the Harlem Renaissance. Dope. Oh, definitely a place I would go as a time traveling tourist. Oh, that'd be so cool. A place to pick. Yeah. That would be a really dope you spot would, to you check You would out. get some eyes. I, I would not blend in. Yeah. And, you know, but, rightfully, I so I think they would be right. worried to see you. Oh, yeah. You and, and, yeah, they would. They but hopefully, you know. Hopefully, they'd be like, I'm, be like, just, I'm, I'm back cool. here. I'm chilling. I'm from the future. <laughs> it is not great, but better. I'm not talking. I'm not telling anyone anything. Right. <laughs> but then the giant crash of October 1929 uh. came. Polly had been making a living waitressing, but soon lost all her customers and then her job due to the Depression. Yeah. And became so impoverished that she ended her second year of college sick with malnutrition. Like, that's how hungry she was. And maybe that's part of the reason that she married a man named William Roy Wynn, known as Billy Wynn, in secret on November 30th, 1930. However, after an awkward two-day honeymoon at a cheap hotel, Polly realized this whole thing was a big mistake. Mm. She wrote years later that she was repelled by the act of sexual intercourse. Oh. She wrote, quote, Why is it when men try to make love to me, something in me fights? Mm. And after a couple of months, they separated and Billy left town and she did not contact him again until they annulled their marriage in 1949. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, okay. These days, some scholars have said that Polly would identify as a transgender male. Mm -hmm. But, of course, she didn't have that language available to her at the time. Uh, it reminds me of Lily Elb. Right. We talked about her mm -hmm. experience. A lot um, of things remind me of Lily in this Right. In this and it's a similar era. I mean, early 20th century. Actually, Lily would pass away from her second surgery only uh -huh. a year later after this marriage. Oh, wow. That was in, okay. that was in 1931. Mm. But whatever the case, it's clear that she struggled with her gender identity and her sexuality. She thought of herself as a mixture of genders or more often, quote, one of nature's experiments, a girl who should have been a boy. She wore her hair short and she preferred wearing pants to skirts. She had a pretty slight frame, so she sometimes was mistaken for a teenage boy. After her brief marriage, she shortened her name from Pauline to Polly. Though she also experimented with the names Paul and Dude. Dude. Which is a great name. Love it. Just went by Dude. I'm like, hey, I'm Dude. It. Hey, Dude. Hey, Dude. Good to meet you, Dude. Love it. Also, it's like if your name is Guy, you know, like I'll never forget. Right. Because if guy. I do, I'm just going to say, hey, Guy. And they'll be like, wow, you remembered. Uh, Yeah, I totally did. Do you think did. anyone Dude. named Guy ever says that? <laughs> yeah. Wow, you remembered. <laughs> At some point in the 1930s, she asked doctors for exploratory surgery to check for, quote, secreted male genitals. And she tried to convince them to give her hormone treatments. This is something that reminds me a lot about Lily. Yeah. Is that Lily, if you remember our episode on Lily and Gerda, um, Lily had talked a lot about how justified she felt in her gender struggles when the doctors found out that she had like an underformed ovaries. Right. And I feel like Polly was looking for the same, a similar justification right. for, for how she was feeling internally. She couldn't mm. find a reason for it. And she really wanted a reason. Yeah. But actually the doctors were like, you actually have less testosterone than most women. You have no, nothing going on. Interesting. Just who she was. Yeah. She also acknowledged the term homosexual describing others, but with herself, she preferred saying that she had a, quote, inverted sex instinct that caused her to behave more like a man. But New Yorker points out that, quote, 
By way of explaining why she believed she was a heterosexual man, Murray noted that she didn't like to go to bars, wanted a monogamous relationship, and was attracted exclusively to extremely feminine women. All of that is less a convincing case for her convoluted heterosexuality than for her culture's harsh assessment of the possibilities of lesbianism. So, yeah, she was just like, lesbians like to sleep around and go out drinking and they're all real butch looking, I guess, Uh or something. Uh But that's definitely more of a stereotype that existed at that time. Yeah. She could have maybe today might more freely accept the term lesbian than at that time. Maybe. I mean, we see this, I feel like, pretty regularly, too, of people who lack the modern language that we have mm-hmm. to explore gender and sexuality. Right. Still, some of that stems from their own predisposed ideas yeah. about what these identities mean. Absolutely. And so it's sort of like rooted in stereotype just because they, they're uneducated on that. Yeah. Because it didn't exist yet. Well, and sometimes they were pointing out that she was being brave, really brave by looking into it and like researching it and trying to find anything written about, you know, quote unquote, sexual deviance. Right, right. Um, But there it is, you know, right there. You have to look in a book that says you're a sexual deviant. So it makes it really (laughs) hard, I think, to like try to absorb that into Uh yourself and as you're part of your identity. Let me learn more about myself from this paper that talks about what trash I am. (laughs) Hey, you, are you a piece of shit? Read this book. Like no one wants to read that (laughs) book. No. Yeah. (laughs) No one wants to identify with that, you know? Wow. Um, So anyway, yeah, that's I I did laugh, though, that she was saying that, oh, I'm I'm like a heterosexual man because I don't like to go to bars (laughs) 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 or like sleep around. Come on now. Have you not met a heterosexual man? (laughs) They'd be going to bars. (laughs) I'm more like a heterosexual man because I exclusively believe in monogamy. (laughs) What? (laughs) Sorry. I'm trying to think of a man. (laughs) I know, right? But anyway, you can see where she was just really coming up against walls, trying to, you know, understand this about herself throughout her life. So she graduated from Hunter College with a degree in English in 1933, probably the worst year in American history to be entering the workforce. Mm. Unless you invested in like a chain of kissing booths in (laughs) January of 2020. (laughs) That's the second worst time to get into a workforce. Specific workforce. (laughs) (laughs) Things went downhill for you. Yeah. I'll tell you, it's going to be all the rage in 2020. Just free love. Everybody's just going to be mashing their naked faces together. (laughs) Sounds bad even pre-pandemic, honestly, if I could be honest. So Polly found a job selling subscriptions to The Opportunity, which was an academic journal of the civil rights organization National Urban League. But eventually she became too unwell to continue like walking around selling subscriptions. And she was diagnosed with pleurisy. And her doctor advised her to find a healthier climate, you know, recover your strength. Right. I wish doctors would prescribe that. I wish a doctor would tell me, you know what? For your own health, you should probably move to Tuscany. (laughs) I don't know if you say so, Doc. Oh, wow. Is my insurance going to cover that? Can you write me a note? (laughs) Now it is. No. (laughs) Uh, But fortunately, that same year, President Roosevelt authorized the funding for she, she, she camps thanks to the urging of his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt. So, again, unemployment was so terrible during the Depression that Roosevelt established nationalized voluntary work programs called the Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC. And these were this was for like young, married, unemployed men to come and have some work doing some government infrastructure jobs like creating man-made lakes, building dams, fighting wildfires and other conservation work like that. 
and they got paid a wage of $30 per month, $22 to $25 of which had to be sent back to their families. So just to put that into context, I think I'll pull out our calculator. Uh, yeah, let's see. That would be $658 today. Oh. So 540 of that had to be sent home. So you were left with $118 for the entire month. In today's money? In today's money. $118 barely gets me through a day. You I know, mean, I mean, what's a cup real? of coffee now? Like $97? <laughs> it's just a banana, Michael. <laughs> what could it cost? Yeah, it was so cool. I remember learning about the CCC when we did our camping trip in Utah yeah. uh, of 2020. We got to drive through State Route 12, which is this amazing scenic road mm -hmm. uh, that kind of winds through the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, which is one of the coolest places I've ever been. It's like going to Mars. <laughs> it was so awesome. And there's all these stops along where you can kind of get these incredible scenic views. And there was mm -hmm. a lot of signs up about how Roosevelt had the CCC come out there. And uh, a lot of men were given jobs sort of like uh, uh, cultivating this landscape mm -hmm. and helping build the national parks. Yeah. It was super awesome stuff. Yeah. It was kind of a cool, like, two birds with one stone program because it was like, let's employ some people, which is desperately needed, yep. and also improve the infrastructure of the country at yeah. the same time. And I was like, oh, that seems smart. Yeah. Seems smart. Love seems it. like that would be a real good idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think another bridge just crumbled somewhere. <laughs> right. Anyway. But Eleanor thought it wasn't very fair to leave unemployed women out of this program. Sure. Again, this is just for young married men. And she's like, actually, women have been hit hardest by this depression. Um, and they're being left out of all these programs meant to address what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and she knew that there were women in America who were willing to work in forestry and conservation if they were getting money to send back to their families. So the first she-she-she camp was born, Camp Terra, or Temporary Emergency <laughs> Relief Assistance. Can I just say? I know she-she-she is so... She-she-she. That would never fly today. It's so <laughs> 1940s, you know? It's like, mm -hmm. see-see-see, what if it's she-she-she? I know. I was like, okay, I don't know if that would work out. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. We got she-sheds. We did get she-sheds, but that was also laughed at. Yeah, true. So I don't know. And so Camp Terra is where Polly ended up at the end of 1933 to recover her health. That's awesome. And let's find out about her time there after a short break. Sounds good. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back, campers. Okay, so Polly regained her health there at Camp Terra, the she-she-she camp, and she actually got to meet Eleanor Roosevelt at one point. But she clashed with the director of the camp, who was a bit of an authoritarian, it seems. Mm. She ran it in kind of a semi-military fashion, which this is a little ironic because FDR always made sure that the CCC camps were never military like at all because he desperately did not want them to resemble the Hitler Youth program in any way. Yeah. It's like this is this cannot look like the American version of Hitler Youth. This is a totally different thing. Yeah. Do not run this like a drill sergeant. <laughs> But that's exactly what this director seemed to do. She didn't really like Polly's attitude when she met the first lady because Polly didn't stand up when they were introduced. All that mean, but she was there like for literally a medical diagnosis of being exhausted. Yeah, so she's like, give her a break. "Lady, I'm medically tired. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm sitting down." <laughs> oh Lord! My doctor said I should go live in Tuscany. You're lucky I'm even here. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> if only. And then this director found a copy of Das Kapital by Karl Marx in Polly's stuff, which Polly just had from a college course at Hunter. But this director is like, communist! I know, right? But most of all, this director disapproved of Polly's relationship with her fellow counselor, a white woman named Peg Holmes. Polly's first love. Aww. I love it. So the director kicked them both out of the camp, and Polly and Peg just sort of like, hoboed around for a while, just hopping on freight trains, hitchhiking, you know, bindles, the, uh, cooking total... a can of beans under a bridge over a bucket fire, I imagine. Yeah. I wonder if she knew about hobo signs, the little signs oh, yeah, they the put little, up. You know, that, the, put up like a secret code, like, yes, this bridge codes. is safe. Yeah. Uh, careful, there's a patrol around here. If you see mm -hmm. a little squiggle, it means certain things. Yeah, or like yeah, you, can lay on, you can sleep here and the owner won't won't run you out right. or whatever. Right. They had little, little codes. Yep. So I imagine she picked up on those. Pretty cool. And during this time, Pauline actually traveled disguised as a man. New Yorker writes that, quote, she learned all about the labor movement, stood in her first picket line, joined a faction of the Communist Party USA, and then resigned from that party a year later because she found the party's discipline irksome. 
I get it. She's not one to take uh, to get pushed around by nobody. No, she does not like constraints. Right. But yeah, that while while she's riding the rails is when she was sort of saying, "I'm Paul. I'm Dude. I'm yeah. Steve." Like she's trying different names right, out. And, right. And yeah, wearing pants, wearing her hair short, you know, wearing a men's hats and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. I wonder if that was also for safety of travel, like two women traveling together. I, I was going to ask that. A couple. I like feel like that was kind of a part. Couple, yeah. And I, I do think it's interesting because, for example, um, I'm looking back at our Elagabalus story because she said her whole life, "I am the Empress. You call me your Empress. Uh, you will address me as such." Mm-hmm. So it became very clear that even though Elagabalus didn't have the sort of modern conversations and dialogue and and education. We could still glean from that very clearly that she wanted to use she pronouns. She wanted to go by the name Elagabalus. Right. It's like that. With Polly, we definitely kind of have been trying to sort of figure that out. It's different takes and different articles. But we can only kind of assume what Dr. Murray might have wanted today, right? Mm -hmm. So honestly, really, it just kind of points to the sort of complexity and the fluidity of gender and conversations around gender, which are both quite fluid and change all the time. Right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Much like gender itself. Exactly. Very fluid. Yeah. Um, yeah, we we saw some, there are some scholars who who have have retroactively applied he him and some use all pronouns throughout, just depending what part of her life they're in. Right. And for example, the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture says that for their exhibit about Dr. Murray, quote, throughout both the physical and online exhibition, the museum has decided to use she, her pronouns, keeping with historical precedent and have identified Murray as she identified herself in accordance with our language guide. Mm. So, yeah, they all kind of each source kind of takes their own stance on it, I guess, and chooses their own their own way of going forward. But they kind of all acknowledge that it it is a conversation right. that's ongoing and that's yeah. very fluid and that they'll probably update as they go. I mean, we don't have that luxury, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but as as it evolves, they can, you know, evolve the way well, they, they talk about Polly. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, especially when we get into Polly's future uh, as the episode goes on. We'll learn that her experiences as a woman in the world really kind of define her legacy. And of course, again, this is at a point in time right. where, you know, if, if she were to identify as trans today, that would be a big part of her experiences. Mm-hmm. Back then, they weren't talking to her like that. She wasn't speaking like that. She was speaking largely, especially as she moved forward in her professional career, about her experience in the world as a woman surrounded by all these cis men mm. like that are constantly challenging her in both black and white spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she's having she's up against the wall with these guys a lot. Yeah. So we like you said, like we don't particularly feel confident on this show sort of making that decision for her mm-hmm. posthumously. Uh, we're kind of taking the Smithsonian's angle here and saying, you know, she wrote in her books about herself using she her pronouns. Yes, things might have been different were she around today. Um, but it really ultimately it just does bring up that same thing that the conversation around gender, gender itself, both very complex issues. Uh, and, and what's kind of cool about it is that we're living in the middle of this conversation right now. Mm-hmm. Right. It's happening all around us. 
uh, in all kinds of different places. I'm fascinated by it and I love to just listen to it and kind of I feel like I'm just at a movie sometimes just like watching the story unfold. I'm like, <laughs> cool, I, I'll just sit here and listen to the story. Cool. It, let me know what's happening next. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's awesome to me. I don't get why people are like so resistant to mm. these these uh, cultural conversations happening. I'm like, let it play out. Get to, I'm not getting involved. It's got nothing to do with me. Uh, <laughs> I just think it's kind of cool to see happen. Well, maybe they don't want to change the behaviors that need to be changed. Well, so. yeah, I mean, that's what people But are... it is so weird to be like, well, I think about chromosomes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. show, like, come on. <laughs> you don't give two shits never... about any of that. Exactly. <laughs> you know you don't. Uh-huh. You only just started care for some fucking reason. Right, because you want to be <laughs> contrarian, I guess. Right, or, or make a decision about something or whatever. and yeah. get real stuck in it for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why people do that, but yeah. people do do that. <laughs> people do do that. Yeah. But but and that again, it just comes back to that. It's a complicated issue. Gender is a complex yeah. thing, and uh, and all we can do is kind of keep listening yeah, um, to what's definitely. going on. Take yeah. take part if it involves you, and and sit back and listen if it doesn't. Right, because um, it is it, it is complicated. And yeah, the exploration of gender is a complicated issue. Right. Um, but using someone's correct pronouns <laughs> when they ask you to is not. Complicated right. at all. It is super uncomplicated. Yes. It is extremely fucking easy <laughs> to do, actually. Yes. Um, so yeah, don't don't I mean, don't be like, oh, it's very complicated just so you don't change your behavior, because that's the thing right. that's making it difficult now. Exactly. You know. So exactly. yes. So in 1938, she applied to go to graduate school for sociology at the University of North Carolina. Now they didn't accept black students, but Polly had family ties. Two of her enslaver relatives had attended. Another had been on the board of trustees and another had created a permanent scholarship. So she was kind of like, I think I have a right to be here. (laughs) And I love that. Yes. (laughs) I really love that. Oh, let me tell you about my great great grandfather. (laughs) Oh, you want a legacy candidate? Uh huh. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you about some of uh, my family. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. But six days after she applied, the letter came. Quote, Dear Miss Murray, I write to state that members of your race are not admitted to the university. Wow. And I'm just going to pull into Speculation Station uh-huh. and say that the letter went on to say, because we all have big, fat, poopy diapers that are really taking up all of our time right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's probably accurate. I think that's accurate. So, What's ironic is that in this instance, separate but equal should actually have worked in Polly's favor. Uh-huh. Because only two days before she got her rejection letter, the Supreme Court had said that segregated schools had to admit black students if they did not have an equivalent available. And they did not in New- in North Carolina. OK. But the legislature of North Carolina got around this whole thing oh, of course by they did. promising to set up a college for black students just as soon as we can we swear wow. promise promise wow and they Any went for that now. they said okay i know the supreme court was like we trust you okay your record's pretty good north carolina okay come on, <laughs> on racial equality <laughs> wow and instead, you know, obviously they slashed its budget by two thirds and completely ignored it and did nothing so They just got away with it. But we're getting to it eventually. Yeah. Yeah. At some point. So Polly asked the NAACP to help her sue UNC. But 
The NAACP said no because they thought that her being a New York resident was going to hurt the case. Isn't that ironic? She couldn't go to school in New York because she was a resident of North Carolina. So she became a resident of New York and then could not sue North Carolina (laughs) because she wasn't a resident of her home state. (laughs) I'm just like, she must have been like, God damn it. Are we not a United States? (laughs) So frustrating. Dr. Patricia Bell Scott has argued that it was also because of Polly's openly queer life. So, yes. Yeah, so Bell Scott is some one of these scholars who is talk, talks a lot about her sexuality, her gender identity. Uh-huh. And it's her opinion that the NAACP was maybe engaging in a little bit of respectability politics okay. at this time. Because, of course, obviously, first of all, they want cases they can win. Yeah. So if they feel like they can't win, they're not going to take the case, no matter how good it is. All right. And secondly, they want the the person, the defendant, to be the quote unquote right type of black person oh. to kind of further the cause. Right, sort of. right, right. I think it's like now when we talk about immigration, you have to talk about the doctors and lawyers that come from other countries. And, yeah. and you're like, but also there's people who just they just work a normal like an everyday job and yeah. they go home and they do normal shit. Yeah. And they're not like. I also think they should be allowed to live. Yeah. It <laughs> you know matter. what I mean? Yeah. Um. So I think it's something like similar to that. You know, in that time period, they gotcha. were like, we just need you to be a nice, straight, uh, well-dressed, educated, well-spoken person so uh, that you don't look like a scary black person or something Jeez. to all the crazy white people we're dealing with. Right. Because they were dealing with such crazy white people, you know, uh, well, like you've exactly. got to kind of you, you understand where they're coming from. Oh, because yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, look who we have. Look at the assholes we have to impress. Right. You know, they'll, they'll and use how prejudiced anything. they are. Yeah. They'll yeah. use literally and they go, oh, you you tied your left shoe before your right shoe? No, I don't think so. Pretty much. Case closed. Yeah. And when we still see that. So, yeah. you know, I, I can see why it feels icky, but it's also like I can see why the, where the logic is for it, even though it's not like emotionally nice. Right. <laughs> you can see why they might have just been like, you're not the right kind of candidate for us. Okay. Um, however, all the, everything written down, all the evidence that's written that you can look at is because she was not a resident of the state. I see. That's the official reason. Gotcha. So Polly also wrote to both of the Roosevelts asking them to denounce UNC and criticizing FDR for accepting an honorary degree from them. But nothing ended up working. Mm-hmm. She did not attend UNC at any point. However, this was the beginning of her lifelong correspondence with the First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. She responded to Polly's letter with an invitation to tea. Mm. According to Kenneth Mack in the Boston Review in an article titled Polly Murray, Eleanor Roosevelt's Beloved Radical, their relationship was remarkable for the way Polly could get under Eleanor's skin. Mm. Eleanor once called a letter from Polly, quote, one of the most thoughtless I have ever read. (laughs) To which Polly replied, quote, You have been utterly frank with me, and I should like to be equally frank with you. (laughs) So don't start, man. Won't be, Eleanor. (laughs) I'm just going to say it like it is. I love Eleanor's like, you didn't have a lot of deference in that letter. And she's like, I'm sorry, what's deference? Right, yeah. (laughs) I don't have that for anyone, Uh (laughs) ma'am. And I think Eleanor was like, all right, all right, all right. No, she definitely, they they both were like pretty close for years. And they both cited one another as big inspirations for quite a lot of things. So, yeah, a a productively contentious relationship Uh is how I saw it put (laughs) in one place. Polly experienced an emotional breakdown when her relationship with Peg ended. Again, her first love, this, right. this woman she had rode the rails with uh-huh. and done all this stuff with. Defied that um, shitty director of the she-she-she right, she camp. Crap camp and yeah. everything. 
Um, unfortunately, I can't find anything about Peg herself, so right. we, we can't say much about who she was as a person mm-hmm. or anything, but um, probably it was pretty cool. I'm just going to decide that. Yeah. <laughs> Speculation Station, she was pretty awesome. Cool. She kicked ass. <laughs> pretty cool lady, yeah. Peg Holmes. But yeah, Polly had like just a total breakdown when they broke up, and she ended up going to the Bellevue Hospital in New York for psychiatric treatment. Mm. When she left, she was with her hospital roommate and new girlfriend, oh. Adeline McBean. What? Which is just an amazing name Adeline for a children's McBean. book character. I love it. I mean, I'm getting big Amelia Bedelia vibes. Yes. Adeline McBean. But I prof- love it. Hopefully she wasn't as dumb as Amelia Bedelia. <laughs> Literature's <laughs> dumbest character. <laughs> I know. That girl. The only thing I remember from an Amelia Bedelia book was somebody asked her to draw a bath. <laughs> And you know that she pulled out a sketch pad. And you know what she did. Started drawing a bat. I know. It's it's a, it's a shock that she was still employed by oh, the end of that amazing. book. I mean, it really showed you just, I actually had a lot of respect for her employers. <laughs> Very They're patient, like, man. It's, all right, look. Okay, she's incredibly literal. So yes, everybody think is. about Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy. Exactly, yes. Amelia Bedelia was the original Drax. <laughs> <laughs> and the, <laughs> I love that. Oh, Lord. So anyway, she's with her Amelia Bedelia, Adeline McBean, and they boarded a public bus to get back to Polly's family in Durham for the Easter holidays, even though Polly hated taking segregated transit. It was really her least favorite thing. She wrote that the intimacy of the space, quote, permitted the public humiliation of black people to be carried out in the presence of privileged white spectators who witnessed our shame in silence or indifference. Well, that's that just lays it out so clearly. Uh, yeah. What was wrong with, oh my God, that's She's like, so I literally have to get into this tiny space yeah. and squeeze my ass past all you jerks and all the empty seats available yeah. and go sit in the worst section. Well, and more than that, it just points out like why it's so much more than just me having to sit right. in the back of the bus. It's, this is every time I get on the bus, it's further reinforcing this idea that we are less than, yes. that all these white people already believe in. Even even I would think less directly racist white people who might not think twice about it and uh, you know, not, not really care who's on the bus where mm-hmm. subconsciously are getting reinforced with this idea constantly. Absolutely. Well, you're better, so you can sit at the front of the bus. Like, it, yeah. Uh, that's it's such a brilliant way to put it. Yeah. she She's good at that. She's yeah. very good at that. Yeah. So when they had to change buses in Virginia course that was the south so they had to move to the back of the bus where mm. black people are mandated to sit but all the seats reserved for the black pa- passengers were broken so they were like well we're gonna move to ones in the white section they mm-hmm. sat down and they had been t- talking about gandhian civil disobedience like you do with your lover oh yeah <laughs> i know whenever we're on a bus together it's that's it the first thing come that comes up, up. it comes yeah. up <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love they're just like staring into each other's eyes like i love Nonviolent. Yeah. <laughs> I love you nonviolent. Know, you know what I'm thinking about next summer? What? A hunger strike. <gasps> I was thinking about a hunger strike oh, this summer. We're perfect. You're so beautiful. <laughs> so this was not a planned thing, but when they were they had just been talking about, you know, nonviolent forms of protest, they sat in the white section. And so when they were asked to move and move and to sit in those broken ass seats, they politely refused and mm. continued to sit where they were sitting. That's right. And of course, the cops were called, they were arrested and thrown in jail. Now, the NAACP was interested this time, Mm -hmm. but Virginia knew the issue of segregation was heating up and they didn't want to call down the thunder. 
So instead of charging Polly and Adeline with breaking segregation laws, they only charged them with disorderly conduct and they were fined about $45, which just checking again here is over $800 today. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. For sitting on the bus? You know, and it's that same, they're like, oh, well, it's not, it's not uh, a racial issue. It's just like, you should have, you should have listened to that police officer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Boy, isn't that always the case? Mm. Polly had been presenting as male while traveling with Adeline, and she'd even given her name as Oliver when she was arrested. So Dr. Bell Scott has argued that possibly the NAACP was again like, you know, let's not put a spotlight on this case, particularly this one. Not the right... Right. So instead, the Workers Defense League came in and paid their fine. And a few months later, they gave Polly a job. And it was through this administrative position that she got involved in the case of Odell Waller, who was a black Virginia sharecropper who had been sentenced to death because he killed his white landlord during an argument. Mm. And the Workers Defense League was arguing that he had been in legitimate fear for his life, that they had been like really going at it. He thought his white landlord was going to kill him. Right. He killed him in self-defense. Okay. So Polly was traveling around raising money for Odell's defense. Mm-hmm. And she wrote to her friend Eleanor Roosevelt on his behalf. And Eleanor actually reached out. She personally asked the governor of Virginia to ensure that Odell got a fair trial pretty telling that the first lady has to ask for that. Right. Sort of, I think, a thing that we uh, already expect in this country. But yeah, anyway, it's in the Constitution, but you know. sort of in the Constitution. Uh-huh. Um, and then she, she also privately asked her husband, the president, to commute his death sentence as oh. well. But ultimately, Odell was executed in 1942. Damn. Yeah. After all that, Polly got very interested in a career in civil rights law. She became a passionate orator, and after a speech she gave at a WDL rally, a young lawyer named Thurgood Marshall wrote her a letter of recommendation to Howard University School of Law, where he was an alumnus. Nice. In 1941, she was awarded a scholarship, and she said she went in with a one thing on her mind, overturning Jim Crow laws. Now, Howard was an all-black school, so finally she was in a class surrounded by black people, but she still stood out. She was the only woman. On her first day, one of her law professors said in front of her entire class that he, quote, didn't understand why a woman would want to go to law school. Uh, wow. I mean, it's so pointed to be the only woman in the room and have him just generally tell the whole room, like, why would a lady want to be here? Also, my answer to that would be, uh, the reason is exactly what you just, just said. said. Ex- that's, that's exactly what reason. I thought. <laughs> I was like, the thing that women have gotten fucked over so many times in history for not understanding the law and how they're protected by it. And of course, women should go to law school. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? I want to go to law school because you think I shouldn't. How about right. that? How about that? Now, she was obviously humiliated by this comment, open in class to everyone, but also, as she said, it, quote, guaranteed that I became the top student. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I got so pissed. I was like, oh, you bitch. Uh-huh. Watch me. Uh-huh. She referred to this type of discrimination as Jane Crow. And as the Smithsonian writes, she, quote, subsequently became an active member of the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, and contributed to the growing dialogue on the intersection of racial and gender-based discrimination. 
She also participated in sit-ins at restaurants with discriminatory seating policies in Washington, D.C., years before the prevalence of those sit-ins in the 50s and 60s. It was at Howard that she would place her bet about Plessy versus Ferguson, and we'll hear more about that right after this commercial break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to math and magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. 
All right, and welcome back to the show. Okay, so it's 1944. Polly's in Howard University, and she and her classmates are having a spirited discussion about how to bring about the end of Jim Crow laws. Now, ever since the landmark separate but equal decision in 1896, civil rights lawyers had been questioning the equal part. Mm. So they were kind of trying to chip away at it by being like, "Okay, here's a specific white school uh, up against a specific black school and they don't quite measure up to the same quality of facilities or whatever in order to kind of say this law is not not great. It's not it's not doing what you say it's supposed to do. Yeah. Um, But that wasn't really working. Again, it was really small gains, if any, from that argument. And so Polly said, why not challenge the separate part instead? And the response was, quote, hoots of derisive laughter, as she wrote in her memoir. (laughs) But she bet her professor, Spotswood Robinson, $10 that Plessy would be overturned within 25 years. And her thesis, her senior thesis paper, formalized her argument that separate but equal violated the 13th and 14th Amendments of the U.S. Constitution. Okay. So she was just straight up like, forget the equal. It doesn't even matter if they're equal. The thing is, we should not be be separate by race. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Now, Polly graduated, of course, at the top of her class, just like she said she would. Just like she said. And she was elected chief justice of the Howard Court of Peers, which normally would have resulted in a scholarship to Harvard. But Harvard didn't accept women. Even one who had a recommendation letter from the ding-dang president of the United States like Polly did. Now, imagine that. You apply to a school and the president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, <laughs> has written a recommendation letter for you. And they're like, still not good enough. Nope. If we let one woman in, what's next? Two women? <laughs> Why would a woman even want to go to law school? (laughs) They gave her the Jane Crow version of her old UNC letter saying, quote, You are not of the sex entitled to be admitted to Harvard Law School. So she wrote back, quote, Gentlemen, I would gladly change my sex to meet your requirements, but since the way to such change has not yet been revealed to me, I have no recourse but to appeal to you to change your minds on this subject. Are you telling me that one is as difficult as the other? Damn. Damn. Tell him. Tell him, Polly. Uh, damn. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Is it harder for you? To change your minds than it is for me to ha- change my whole ding-dang gender. Okay, I can't find a penis to attach. Right. Or trust me, I would have. It's damn 1944. Sorry. I also love, you're not of the sex entitled to be admitted. Oh, right, yeah. Like, that's such a choice of words. Oh, yeah. They they said what they meant. Oh, yeah, they're lawyers. They chose that word very specifically, yep. and I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> But it didn't work. She never did get in. Yeah, I think Harvard was really busy at that time where their balls were shrinking back into their bodies. <laughs> after, so after that they letter. were just like withdrawing away from the ground <laughs> into their bodies. Uh-huh. So they were like, oh, no, you know, and they were really worried about that. Right. <laughs> so she went to Berkeley instead, and she wrote a paper arguing for equal opportunity in employment. And after graduation, she was named the first black district attorney in California. The next year, she was named Woman of the Year by Mademoiselle Magazine. And in 1948, she was approached by the Methodist Church. Uh, They opposed segregation, and they wanted to be able to give out some information about how it negatively impacted their mission in the 31 states where they had parishes. Right. 
Could Polly write up a little pamphlet for them explaining the segregation laws in America? Oh. Well, could Polly ever? (laughs) (laughs) Because in response, Polly published a 776-page book (laughs) in 1950 called State's Laws on Race and Color. So she walked into the Methodist church and was like... On their desk. (laughs) Here you go. (laughs) Here's that pamphlet you asked for two years ago. Yeah. (laughs) They're like, oh, my God. And it was so comprehensive that the ACLU distributed copies to law libraries, black colleges, and human rights organizations. Thurgood Marshall kept stacks of them around in the NAACP offices and famously called it the Bible of the civil rights movement. Because, as Smithsonian writes, quote, The book skillfully illustrates the social implications and unconstitutionality of segregation laws. And the social implications part is really important because she got made fun of in law school for wanting to include in her arguments about how unconstitutional segregation was Mm. the fact that it had this heavy weight, this heavy social, emotional, psychological weight to it. It wasn't, as you said, it wasn't just sitting in the back of the bus. Right. It's all the rest of it. Right. It's very invisible. And you can't look at it and I can't, you can't experience it. Right. I can experience it. I can tell you about it, but that's it. That, But there's so much more to it than you understand. You're doing so much more damage than you even understand. Right. And they laughed at her about that. They were like, they ain't going to care about that. But he and his team used her book extensively to craft their arguments in Brown v. Board of Education, the landmark case that overturned Plessy v. Ferguson in 1954. Amazing. New Yorker writes, quote, In this way, to Murray's immense gratification, the book ultimately helped render itself obsolete. That's awesome. But that is not her only contribution. Old Spotswood Robinson was also on the team. Her teacher? Brown v. Board of Education. Damn. And when they got together, you know, convening to figure out their arguments, he remembered Polly's senior thesis paper that she had placed her bet on back in Howard. Wow. And he pulled it out. He showed it to them. And they used her paper as a guide to strategize their arguments. Amazing. And it was the social implications thing that was the reason it got overturned. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. But apparently they didn't bother to tell her how much she contributed to the case until Spotswood ran into her randomly at Howard 10 years later. Oh, my God. I would have been like, what? Here, use this girl's paper, but let's not tell her about it. We just won't write her a letter. Like, what the? I hope she was immediately like, "Okay, where's my ten dollars? Right. (laughs) We had a bet. (laughs) Better open that wallet, Spotswood. Uh Laughing at me. Who's laughing now? Look, but this only scratches the surface of Polly's life. She does so much more. She's about to get so pissed at the civil rights movement for neglecting women in their leadership. And she's about to get hella pissed at the women's rights organization she helped start for sidelining minorities. She's about to integrate the church. She's about to meet the love of her life. And she's about to inspire Ruth Bader Ginsburg to argue the case of her life. Polly did so much. And she turned out to be such an incredible character that, of course... We had to split this into two parts. So, you know, we're going to come back with the rest of her story next time, mm-hmm. which will does involve like her actual romance. I think that's one of the things with this story that we were looking at is there's too much to tell about her. And this show, I think we've learned over the close to a year that we've been doing it now mm-hmm. that it it's not always a specific romance that we're looking at, but rather um, someone's unique experience with attraction. 
mm-hmm. um, who or sometimes what they're attracted to. <laughs> um, and and that in and of itself is as much of a story as, you know, a love story between two people. Definitely. Um, and that's such a big part of her life. But we do get to meet uh, her romantic partner in mm-hmm. part two, the person that she really fell for. And that's very exciting, too. Yeah, she just... Polly is inspirational person. True. I, I'm like a little fucking mad that I've never heard of her before now. Right. <laughs> yeah, because she's just in every facet of of everything. She has so much to offer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like someone who I, I was very interested in feminism from high school. And I even remember being like, feminism is like so awesome because women are are everything women are gay women are black women are indigenous women are are not western they're from other countries like right. if you want to care about if you want to work towards equal rights for women then you have to work towards so many other movements you yeah. know what i mean women are disabled and women you know what i mean yeah but of course that was before i learned how much feminism was sidelining so many other in identities yeah. um in within the movement in favor of specifically white women mm-hmm. and even more specifically white women with a certain amount of money um so it's very interesting that in all of these intersections of class of race of gender identity of sexuality she just has so much to say yeah yeah and it's it- it, not just inspirational, but she's so educational. And I think yeah. that's one thing I'm really excited for in part two is we will get much, much more into the intersectionality arguments mm-hmm. that like for me is always just like, OK, intersectionality, of course. Yeah, yeah that sounds obviously. right. I'm, I'll go for it. Mm-hmm. But just because it seemed like the right thing or the people I know who are smart are telling me this is what you should concern yourself with. She puts it into words that just makes it all click where you're like, Oh, Mm -hmm. that's why. Of course. Like she really contextualizes things in an incredible way. Yeah. Um, That that's a, that's a really challenging skill, even for some of the greatest leaders in these movements, it's still difficult to really explain, but why does this matter so much? Mm -hmm. I can see, you know, someone like me might say like, oh, I could see that it matters to you and that's enough for yeah. me. But to really have someone explain it uh, in a way that just like, oh, my God, I get it now, uh, I think is so powerful. Yeah. And and it's like nice, too, because she was so ahead of her time that she must have felt even a little bit of like impotence in all her yeah. words because she, yeah. she's sort of yelling into this void like yeah it must have felt a lot of her life that no one was really listening or just like oh polly again with her crazy stuff mm-hmm. but then years later it would be the thing right. that did everything that she ever wanted it to do right and you know it sucks that she didn't get the credit and the flowers at the time but it didn't seem to be the main thing for her. She was just like, as long as the thing happens, I don't really care if my name's yeah. attached to it. Yeah. And so I, I just think that's that's really cool too to learn. Just like little moves now, they do build. They it, do build. Yeah, it's equally frustrating and awesome to see how long things take sometimes mm-hmm. because that can that's very frustrating and it shouldn't be like that. And I I never settle for the excuse of, well, it takes a while to change I people's know, minds and stuff like screw that. That's obnoxious. But it does also emphasize the fact that it can feel like you're spinning your wheels, mm-hmm. but the work matters. Mm-hmm. And it and these things often will pay off later than you think they do. Sometimes it takes generations. Right. Um hopefully 
as our technology advances, our communication technology advances, those things can take less and less time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and, and I think that's uh, truer now than it used to be. But you, you do see, I think that, like you said, these these little actions are what makes mountains move, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I just love that she was out there being undeniable. Like, you yes. could not sideline her. No. She's so important to all these movements, right. too, that it was just like, well, we might not like what she's saying, but there's no need. We got to have her here. She's yeah. got to be on my side because right. she's fucking killing it. Yeah. So, yeah, I hope you love this story. Um, I know. There's, so much, there's so much more. Please join us for part two. Yes. There's just so much more to come. Right. It's going to be good. And uh, we will catch you all at the next episode. Don't forget to shoot us an email. Oh, yeah. Give us your thoughts. Uh, romance at iHeartMedia.com. Right. Or uh, we're on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Dianamite Boom. And I'm at Oh Great, It's Eli. And the show is at Ridic Romance. Uh, we can't wait to bring you the rest of this story. Tune in and uh, we'll see you then. I love you. So long, friends, it's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and dance to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know what happened next. To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. 
Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.